i campioni d'Italia, Bacigalupo, Ballarin Aldo, Ballarin Dino, Buongiorno, Castigliano, Fadini, Gabetto, Grava, Grezar, Loic, Maroso, Martelli, il nostro capitano, Valentino Mazzola, Menti, Operto, Ossola, Rigamonti, Schubert. Welcome to episode 43 of Talking Toro, and the one where I know, well, as little as usual about what's going on, because I saw very little of this weekend's defeat to Atalanta. Uh, Rob, I was, as you know, I was in a kind of, was in a campsite in Wales, um, in the Welsh Hills, in a kind of old monastery. Um, not ideal scenario to follow a Torino game, but we did get back from dinner in time. We ran the campsite and I thought I'll just test the 4G connection. And uh, I got a perfect signal for Torino Atalanta, but I did have about 10, 15 people around me. So I kind of had the my phone between my legs and was I'd say I was concentrating on the match about 20-25% and engaged in the conversation 75%. Nobody noticed I was watching this football match until Tony Sanabria scored and uh, I let out a bit of a cheer and uh, then I was rumbled. And after that, it became quite hard to follow. And that was probably a key part of the match. But I'll, I'll just give you my takeaways because I don't really... It was, it was a hard follow. And, and given the result, I've not really gone back to watch it. But this this is how I'll define a match. Um, Vanya made a massive cock-up. Fair play to Zappa Costa for showing more respect to Torino fans than, than Il Gallo. I'm not going to call him by his name anymore in this podcast. Um then it, is, it did seem to be a very boring match. Uh, I've got to say, even kind of when I looked up, I, I, like the kind of Ricardo Rodriguez um, daisy cutter seems to be one of the most exciting moments in the second half. And then Sanabria scored. I thought Moranchuk's effort kind of crossed the line. I thought it might be one that was going to be given because Moranchuk scored. And I was actually worried that Sanabria had been flagged offside at one point. And then I guess my I was did try and get more engaged in the game. And I just thought Atalanta showed a lot more maturity at 1-1. It was almost the jolt they needed. They looked like the more kind of seasoned team. Um, They looked like the team that wanted to go and win it. And we, uh, a bit like the Salernitana game as well, when we went to 1-1, we we lost all our momentum. We didn't go forward anymore. We conceded the initiative and the goal was coming. And I just want to make sure as... um, is Persia still in the River Po? Because that's where Duvans of Parted seemed to send him. I mean, it was it was one of those ones. I can't decide if it was a great piece of skill, a great goal, or just a massive naivety. Uh, not just on Schurz, but on our defence. But it, it was a very good goal. Um, and I don't have a lot more to say. I mean, I think we replaced Sanabria with Pietro Pellegrini as well. It's just, can we not just, you know... Tony wasn't injured. Can we not just finish the match with a... They bought that, um, but and yeah. they bought they bought Plegri on straight after Zapata had scored as well. Yeah, so, it, yeah, that's that's my takeaway from Torino Atalanta. But uh, you certainly, well, I know you weren't actually at home. No, I was so cold, so watching this. So yeah, so I did actually, I did actually watch the entire game. But I'd I'd been out with uh, my sister and brother-in-law and, and my fiance for uh, a meal in Birmingham, so we managed to find a pub to to watch the game. 
and it was um, yeah I was under the influence of a little bit of, uh, of alcohol whilst watching the game um, I, to be honest I just recapping a couple of your points as well like I thought we were the better team until the goal I think it was massively against the run of play I do think obviously Vanya's massively culpable for it but it it's not the big like it's a it's a positioning error for a goalkeeper rather than sort of almost it is I mean it's a fluke it's a cross I'm not sure how much of Zappacasta failing to celebrate the goal was just that he's embarrassed that he'd scored just a fluke well, uh uh because he, he didn't show as much strength when he was celebrating the batter's winner. Um, but yeah, and uh, yeah, obviously just leading to that, I thought, got the equal, I thought 1-1 one, one probably would have been a fair result. I thought we were really good in possession, but maybe Atalanta were almost, as the away team, were almost happy to, to let us have the ball and we didn't really create a chance until obviously Moranchuk and then Sanabria's uh, finish. I thought it was a really good finish from from Tony from a difficult angle as well. Like you, I thought Moranchuk's strike had already gone in, so... And yeah, my worry was whether Tony was onside or not. Um, and yeah, and then you end up with the the winner. I think it is it's a great bit of skill. I think I, I might have made the point that obviously they've they've got Hoy, Hoyland, who's like a bit of a wonder kid up front, who started the game. Shears dealt really well with him, got hauled off after sixty minutes or so, and, and then they bring on Ivan Spatter, who's probably been linked with three no more times than I can. I can remember, and, and he obviously pops up and gets the winner, but obviously the player who's probably scored 30, 40 goals in the last two or three seasons, whereas we bring on <laughs> Pietro Pellegri, who scored, I still believe, two, is it two, sorry, I goals for Torino. So it it probably shows you that Atalanta are at that level where so they've had a few seasons in the Champions League, they've had a few seasons of, of European football, and their finances are in terms of squad depth, is massively over compared to what Torino are able to to have. Obviously, our, our first eleven is quite good, but then when you you look into the reserves and you look into the squad players, obviously, I think have got probably four or five players on their bench who would have walked into our our starting eleven. So, I think it's yeah disappointing, and yeah, I, I may have. Um, Perhaps naively suggested that if we won this game, there was still a potential of uh, catching them in seventh and uh, maybe qualifying for Europe by the league. But yeah, I don't think that's uh, going to happen at all. Well, there's a few things, isn't there? One is, yeah, I think we both thought this was before Atalanta beat Roma, admittedly. But I think we both thought Atalanta were catchable in a, in a kind of wildly optimistic scenario. But actually, Atalanta. Are, potentially could get back into the Champions League with the way things are shaping up. I just thought at 1-1, Atalanta looked at it and thought, this is Torino, it's 1-1, we'll go and beat them. Whereas Torino getting the goal for, this is 1-1, we're playing Atalanta and points not a bad result, bad result on the road to nowhere. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's kind of, that was what was very disappointing. Despite, um, weird, despite weirdly on the pitch, I think if you looked at the, again, a, was probably thankful not to have the BT Sport commentary, but I'd imagine that commentators were probably talking about Torino being the better team. Probably when we got the equaliser, we may have been the, the team to go on to win it. But yeah, like you say, we we didn't really show that urgency. Even even when we concede the goal, Juric is, is bringing our striker for a striker. There's there's not real any harm in the last five ten minutes. Well, less than that, so six seven minutes left to just give it a go and, and have the two strikers up front. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you a few questions about some of the players. So um, 
typically Radonjic in his best moment of form is gets his first injury of the season. So Karamo comes back in. I can't say I noticed him at all in the bits I watched. Did he not play very well before being hooked at half time? No, yeah, he was very anonymous and uh, yeah, well probably wasn't surprised to see him get get subbed at half time because he didn't really have much impact on the game, which is a, has been a rarity for him. He's he's done well in his starts, I think, this season. Um, but yeah, I thought I, I think actually Vlasic was maybe a little bit a bit harsh for him to get dropped. I thought he did okay against Lazio as well. So I thought that may may have been a bit of a, a strange. Um, but it, but again, Juric has said it's, that he doesn't really see that that Juric and Moranchuk can play in the. In the why play Moranchuk against his parent club? It just. Yeah, you know it, that's that that seems strange. And then the other one, if a player who's <clears throat> yeah really seems to have hit a bit of a poor moment for me is Lazzara. I've read his reviews weren't particularly very good. Um, so how yeah I was kind of wondering how he played. I, I, again, I, I don't think he. I don't really think I could even sort of mention one thing that he did particularly well or poorly. I suppose so, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't think definitely had no impact on the game and. Even I think you said, was it the Santana game where he basically came on and just didn't do anything? Um, he stayed in the his heat map must have been yeah 10 meters, yeah ten meters. Um, square, but... So I mean, whether I mean you'd think the lone players are probably have got more of a reason to try and sort of put a little bit more effort in in the in the end part of the season to make their their deals permanent, but. Yeah, Juric made a comment, I think, in one of, in one of the press conferences before the game to say that his fitness probably isn't where it should be, which probably makes his sort of contribution for the equaliser in, in Sassuolo probably a little bit more impressive because, yeah, it doesn't seem like he is match fit at all. Yeah, I think, that, well, the final point for me on Atalanta, because we've got a few things we want to cover. You got, Going back to the first goal, Vanya... I mean, it was a moment that Vanya haters are going to love, but <laughs> his positioning is his biggest problem, isn't it? It's not. His distribution is good. His all-round ball handling skills are generally pretty good. He gets criticised for the shot stopping, but we don't actually concede a lot of shots. Um, and it, sometimes it is one of those, like, every time we concede a shot, it goes in, but it's not always at fault for, for a lot of the goals, but his positioning is often the thing that catches him out. Yeah. Uh, three free kicks, especially, um, and that goal. Yeah, he said. I mean, Zappa Costa. It, it, you know, it, it it is a little bit kind of the the non celebration thing. Is all, yeah, it's it, it's sometimes it is almost more insulting when they don't celebrate. But there probably was a bit of embarrassment about it. But I'm not sure he went for goal. But it was just he left a massive space open. It was yeah. it was it was elementary and. Yeah, it's 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 tough with Vanya because sometimes you get to the stage where, like, yeah, you can live with him being, you know, he he's made massive improvements and and maybe he's a goalkeeper for the next two or three seasons. Bearing in mind, Torino is next season is probably going to look very different to this one. So to have a degree of stability is good, but then he goes and does something like that, and you think it's not even a lack of concentration. It is just it is basic technical goalkeeping and. Very poor. I think I think the way we do benefit from the, his ability to play out from the back, and I think my preference would always be to have a goalkeeper, maybe like a Sirigu in the past, who again was absolutely dreadful with his feet, but you knew he would save you a number of points a season. Does 
does Vanya save as many points as he sort of or sort of contribute to as many goals or at least in just level in terms of our build up play. So he is probably at fault for I can I can think off the top of my head maybe at least three or four this season, which again, compared to last season is an improvement. But I think if we if we were I think a serious team with aspirations of qualifying for European football wouldn't trust Vanya Milinkovic Savic to be their keeper. Well, the, the other point is, Rob, is if Ivan Juric is not Torino coach next season, no other coach would want Vanya as their goalkeeper, I don't think. And that is the crux. As long as Juric is there, then you could understand Vanya being there because it is style of play and there's a trust and there's a relationship. But yeah, I don't. I, I just don't. I think if Juric left and another coach came in, it would, the first thing he would do would change the goalkeeper and, and it would bring in some kind of steady cranio type or um so yeah it's it Va- i think vanya's future is very much linked to Juric's future yeah i think that's i think that's a fair point um so rob this is superga week we've got a special guest joining us shortly um to talk a little bit about one of the facets of superga and before we talk about this year's fourth of may um, everything's a bit topsy turvy this week, but we're going to do well. We've renamed it Toropedia. Um, so you ready for this week's Wikipedia Torino player? I have, have a zero percent uh success rate at the moment, so I, I can only hope to improve uh, from that. So yeah, let's go for it. Okay, well, I'm going to give you clubs, appearances, goals, nice, and we'll reveal the answer before our mystery guest arrives for part two. Um, so are you ready? Pen and paper at hand. Yeah. Everyone at home as well. Bear in mind, any clue I give you, they've been slightly themed so far. That's all I'll say. Um, so, okay. So this player started his career, Ivrea. 23 appearances, one goal. Moved to Bielese, 30 appearances, no goals. Torino, 12 appearances, one goal. Vicenza, 47 appearances, three goals. Back to Torino, 47 appearances, two goals. From Torino, he had a loan at Fiorentina, 15 appearances, no goals. A second loan at Regina, 14 appearances, no goals. Back to his parent club, Torino, at 35 appearances, one goal. Moves on to Ascoli, 31 appearances, two goals. Didn't like Askley so much. He moved back to Torino. 58 appearances, four goals. Back to Fiorentina, 74 appearances, no goals. Cesena, 59 appearances, two goals. Finishing his career at Perugia, 60 appearances, no goals. How are you feeling about that? Do you want me to read through him again? No, nah, I think I, I think I've wrote, I've wrote them down. Not got all the appearances and all the goals, but I'm not sure that's particularly going to help me. Okay, <sighs> just for the people at home, I'm going to read the yeah, yeah, go for it, and it gives me time to think. Ivrea, Bielese, Torino, Vicenza, Torino, Fiorentina, Loan, Regina, Loan, Torino, Ascoli, Torino, Fiorentina, Cesena, Perugia. So, uh, any vibes? 
I had a guess at the start, but yeah, the. So we'll the give the answer and yeah, a little bit later. But yeah, the other clubs don't really fit in with it. Play for Torres. You're just going to go very quiet for the next section of the pod. Yeah, this isn't very. Yeah, this really doesn't make great um, <laughs> <laughs> great listening on a podcast. I try and talk people through my just agony of uh, knowing yeah, that we're well, going to get another one wrong. Bearing in mind, this is the only clue I'm giving you, Torino's next two opponents are Sampdoria and Monza. So when we've done this before, it's been a link to Torino's next opponent. This player obviously hasn't played for Monza or Sampdoria, but may be a link to this week's pod somehow. It might be slightly tenuous, but there's a link. Um, and you would have heard of this player, Rob, but that's all I'll say. It's not, I've not pulled out someone from the 1920s. or It's not a particularly historic player. Played a lot of games, though. Yeah. And this player, the only other clue I'll give you, because I think by now people listening would have processed and they'll either have got it or may have got it. This player did score a very historic goal for Torino. Any other clue I'll give you? I was, just checking, my, yeah. I was just checking the spelling uh, that I had the, the surname right. Anyway... We'll let you all think about it. Um, before we talk about Monza and Sampdoria, and before we bring in this week's guest, Rob, it's Superga Week. I know you've done some research on it. So last year we did a whole, I think we did um, a fairly comprehensive bit on what the legacy of Il Grande Torino means to Torino fans. And so this week we've got a, we're going to delve into one of the stories a little bit. I think this year, yeah, I mean, 4th of May, it's always a, it's always a special occasion. I think there's a, I think this year a few bits of news is that Alessandro Bongiorno will read the names out, um, which I think is a nice touch. I don't know how it all came about. Um, we've joked before about Ricardo Rodriguez not like as the official captain, not <laughs> liking to talk very much. But I think it's nice that Turin. It's obviously going to mean a lot more to to, to Bongiorno and his family. So that's a nice touch and. Um, yeah, I think you wanted to bring in a few other things on events that are happening in Superga and also like traditionally Torino and often do quite well around Superga anyway. So yeah, so wise. Th- oh, oh, maybe that's just uh, something I you're gonna. I have you've done the stats on this. I'm so not, yeah, I have, might I, be wrong. I felt like I needed to do some stats after making some wild claims because I, I, I think maybe in uh, last week's part I may have said that Torino have a bad record in Verona. Um, and yeah, I think that I think actually our records oh. com- in comparison to a lot of other places. I think I was thinking Kievo just because they lost when I was there. Um, uh, can have I, you got an apology to make as well, Peter? I've got an apology. So Rob, yeah, Rob, we did get a few people picking up, and Rob said we've got a terrible record at Verona, where relatively speaking we haven't. Um, but I also, I also went in two footed on Antonio Floro Flores and. I was thinking about Simone Pepe, who did go on to play for Juventus as being the one who scored for, Pier- for Piacenza and winding up the Maratona. So Antonio Flora Flores, all is forgiven. Um, that was, yeah, a couple of mistakes in last week's pod. But... Yeah, and just to, add to ha- make that hat trick of mistakes, I also said that we'd not scored from outside the area uh, all season. And um, yeah, I think we correctly worked out that Moranchek had <laughs> scored, ironically, against uh, Elas. 
And Sanabria had I'll hold my hands up for because I was at wedding for that one. So that wasn't quite as vivid in my in my mind. But anyway, I have to basically a long, very, very long story short, have actually done some research for this. So I'd said that I, I felt Torino always tend to do quite well in the game before Superga and the game sort of after it. So sort of obviously depending on when the game falls, when the sort of uh so I've I've looked at the period obviously before the fourth of May and then after the fourth of May or on the fourth of May. Um, would you like to have a guess? I've done from coincidentally that obviously my era of the 3 fan coincides with the Bernard Carrier's presidency, so I felt like that was a natural period to do. So I've done from 2005-2006 season up until this season, obviously. Um, so obviously the last season is the is the result. Um, obviously, there's a gap there because of the COVID season where there were no games in, in May. So there's 16 games. Do you want to guess how many before Superga? So the, the game directly before the 4th of May, we've won out of 16. Well, I think the Torino average, well, there's been some Serie B years where we're probably doing a bit better statistically. We'll probably be about 33%. So I'm going to raise that for Superga to, um, I, is, do you want the number of wins or the percentage? Yeah, either or, either. Or. Yeah, I'm saying something like forty-five percent win rate. And... Very, very close. Yeah, so we actually won eight of the sixteen. So even I could do that math. <laughs> so <it was laughs> That's 50, why it, I wondered why you were so confident about it was, the percentage. It was fifty. So fifty percent win percentage. It's <laughs> um, not bad for Torino, I've got to say. Yeah, if you think that, so, you've got I've got a nice little um spreadsheet here which might uh might post on twitter after after the pod but yeah there's very good i read a run of three consecutive wins um 2009 to 2012 or 2010 to 2012 um and then after the 4th of may so obviously i think again maybe in my head whether again just psychologically having been to superga on the 4th myself and and just realizing how emotional that is for a torino fan i think being a Torino player and going up and then having a game to play maybe in the next couple of days. I do think that would have some sort of effect on performance. Um, and yeah, again, any 16 games, how many do you think we've won after? Or again, we've actually played two games on the fourth. I could remember I could remember one, which was the Kievo game, but we also played Napoli in 2008, uh, which was also played on the fourth. I remember, weirdly, the the game I remember most around the 4th of May might have been on the 4th of May in the late 90s. We beat Napoli 3-2 in Serie B in a promotion kind of ding-dong. Um, but I would say 7 out of the 16. It's 8 again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, the one thing about this is... Tell us a percentage, Rob. I'm, so I'm, yeah, so curious. I'm sure everyone's going at home, but yeah, that's 50%. Um so yeah, so it's yeah, nice to see that actually something which I felt was true, like like Peter says, I think you're gonna on average Torino are gonna win thirty three. Probably you'd think about one in three games would be around their average throughout a season. Um, so yeah, that is raised to fifty percent on the sort of week of Superga. So we've got two games this week, and statistically, Sampdoria away, Monza at home, we should win at least well, one of them. Given Sampdoria epically shit at the moment. Um... <laughs> Yeah, but I think the Monza game. I think in terms of feeling, the Monza game will be the one with the Superga effect anyway, because they yeah. would have been up. And then it's a home game, whereas Samp, um, a little bit less. So I think 
if we're talking about the superior effect based on that, I would feel a bit more confident about a positive and that, result and that's why And that's why I did the stats of the before and after, because obviously if you look at the... So one of the games that I went to was the 3rd of May, which was the Friday, and then we didn't play again until the following Sunday. So we didn't play until the 12th. So like a full week after they they would have went up to Spurger. So yeah, I think it's... It was something which I felt would, would be true. And yeah, the stats do seem to even that up. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether we... I don't I don't think that there is real science behind it. It's just maybe a, a bit of a confusion. I think... and, and, and maybe there is maybe there is some emotional impact to it that just... It, it's, it would be very difficult for, for anybody, I think, who's gone to the burger, and especially if you, if you do manage to go up there on the fourth. I think it would be very difficult to ignore just that feeling and feeling close to sort of the greatest team in, in Italian football history. No, very good. I think and one of the other things they're doing this year is a bike ride from the Philadelphia up to Superga. Um, we were just talking off there before this. I, I, I'm a very keen bike rider. Rob, I wouldn't say you're not a very keen bike rider. Uh, I think Rob's, Rob... Rob's got a phobia about wheels. We've, yeah, I've got, I've, I've, I've got another confession. If people thought that my uh, not liking coffee was weird, I actually don't know how to ride a bike. Um, so I've tried. I can ride a bike with, um, what are they called? <laughs> Stabilizers. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did. I have tried as an adult. And yeah, that very that went very poorly. Uh, so yeah, I've given up now. I'm not of the statue of, uh, of Peter. I don't think I'd be quite as... Um, I don't think I'd... Uh, yeah, look as majestic on a on a bicycle as Peter, but yeah, that's definitely not one for me. You've never, you've never seen me on a bike, so to, to call me majestic, just live with that. Just live with your vision of me on a bike. Yeah, compared that's to the reality. well. Maybe maybe I don't need to. Maybe I should never see it, just in case that's not the, not the case. But yeah, exactly. no, I know. I know some people um, probably don't walk from the. Probably don't go from the, the Philadelphia, but I know some people walk up to Superga on the fourth, and I think that would be. Uh, something I'd be be up for doing one year, just as a a bit of a almost a, a pilgrimage. pilgrimage yeah, because yeah, usually if, if I've gone, I'll, I'll go up on the on the tram. So yeah, maybe maybe tram up and walk on walk on the way down might be uh, something for me to do in the future. Yeah, but I know I think I, I mean I never need much of an excuse to think about uh, to talk about bike riding. But yeah, I've done I've walked up to Superga a few times, um, and I'll guess. I think, well, I think our guest in part two is quite a good anecdote about travelling up to Superga, but I've had issues travelling up to Superga where there's been no tram or no bus, so I've walked up, and it is a steep hill, and then a few years ago, um, I rode up, and there's a few different ways to ride up as well, and let's talk a little bit about bike racing, the Superga, the road up to Superga is used quite a lot as a hilltop finish in um, stage racing, so in the Giro d'Italia or in um, the kind of Milano-Torino race. And, um, yeah, there's quite a... Torino's history, of, as we talked about many times, it is quite tragic. And you bring in the cycling history, and I was just going to talk about three things very quickly. So Turin's most famous, um, I guess, well, Turin's most famous cyclist, Fausto Coppi. Uh, Fausto Coppi was a big Torino fan. Um, many people consider the greatest Italian cyclist, friends with, well, uh, let's say big Torino fan. He was certainly a, a fan during Il Grande Torino and close friends with Mazzola. Coppi died young of malaria. Um, Coppi's brother, Cersei, died um, 
when he kind of crashed on a tram on a tram line um, towards the bottom of Superga, between Superga and the centre of Turin, is a kind of monument um, to Cersei copy there. Um, that's two stories, and then the great Italian cyclist of the last thirty years, Marco Pantani, um, who passed. Well, he kind of passed away. I remember Pantani passing away. On I think it was Valentine's Day. I was traveling to see Torino play Genoa uh, by train, and that's not really the story I wanted to tell. But uh, Copy uh, Pantani had a severe crash, which almost ended his career and his life on the descent of Superga. When I think he hit a police car at the bottom. So yeah, Turin cycling is um, there's some epic stories to, to delve into, and there's uh, yeah also a lot of tragedy, and that might bring us to one of our guests. Uh, in a few weeks' time as well, we may be able to talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, um, it's an interesting place, Turin, uh, in the sporting scene. There's also a velodrome, I think it's called the Fausto Copy Velodrome, which is quite close to where um, Cersei Copy had his had his accident as well, which is kind of an abandoned velodrome, but they're kind of definitely worth kind of visiting if you like that kind of thing as well. So a lot, kind of a lost sporting arena of Turin. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot going on, a lot going on there, and uh, yeah, the f- kind of fourth of May, a big week, and um, part two of this, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Um, Monza and Sampdoria. I think. Well, before we get onto that, do you want to do the the reveal of the Toropedia? I, I'm not sure I do want to, but yeah, let's go for it for for those listening at home. I do have, yeah. I do have an answer. Go, go for it. Jacobo Balestri. Jacopo Balestri is incorrect, but all right, I'll, give you, I'll give you two more clues so if you can get it. It was a fullback. Yeah. A reason that I selected him this week, he was captain of Torino in, in at least one of those spells. So probably read the name on a 4th of May. Yeah. And he scored the winner in the 100-year anniversary game of Torino with a uncharacteristically brilliant left foot shot from 25 yards out against Empoli would have been 2006 so it's my era as well so I really should know it yeah he played so that would have been like maybe his third or fourth spell in your era so but it definitely it would have been one of your early captains ah Gianluca Camato there you go you got there, Robert. I know. Well but I, 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 don't, I really should have got that because I knew, obviously, I knew his Fiorentina um, history. But yeah, I had a, a rational dislike for him. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think Torino <laughs> fans ever liked. Yeah. I think he was. A, I think he was a. He was like. I mean, he started at Ivrea, which is. Um, yeah, it's just outside Torino, and then. Yeah, but I've got a feeling your Menabrea beer comes it's from, from Biella. Biella. Yeah. Uh, so Bielese's second team would is a team from Biella. So. Gianluca Camotto is a definitely kind of Piedmont. I'm looking. Ball. I'm looking on the label. It doesn't say anything about Gianluca Camotto. So unfortunately, no. that couldn't have been that couldn't have been helped. Yeah, I had the idea just on fullback based on the um, the goals. I just had this weird feeling that Jacopo Pelestri played for Ivrea, um, which I might just quickly just try and find out if I was right or not. Don't try and yeah. sell me something there. With you, Jacopo two, two out of two. Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> He played for Modena because all of Gianni Dibiazzi's signings that year came from Modena. But 
Yeah. No, it was, I, I think that was a... Had yeah, a bit I, of sting, sting I, I, I should have got that one, I think. Should have got that one. But yeah, no, still um, still 1-0 to Peter. Um, I didn't realise the aim of the game was to to catch out the other one. So it's not. not oh, was it not? Attention. Oh, well, I don't know. But I think it. Well, it will be. You want to get I... competitive? <laughs> yeah, we find um, find a player made three appearances in um, 1967 for you uh, <laughs> next week. Um, I did. The only other thing I wanted to say in Superga, and this is a very quick thing, because um, is the I discovered there's a lot on YouTube on on. Super good. FIFA did a documentary. Uh, well, Padelli and and someone else who won't mention this week were being interviewed on it. So I guess it was four or five seasons ago. But yeah, FIFA TV did a documentary on Super which you can find on YouTube, which is actually yeah. very good. Yeah, it's really good. It's about it's probably about eight or nine minutes long. Um, and yeah, just well, I, I'll probably mention it on uh, Twitter as well. But I, I spent part of my bank holiday weekend. Um, adding Grande Torino on FIFA 23 because uh, that's the sort of cool life that I lead um, and yeah I feel like it. that's almost uh, again people who may listen to this uh, are into video games there's a big sort of shift where the, the EA FIFA games are sort of moving away from that FIFA logo and they're making their own sort of their own game next next season and I think a lot of getting a message about football a lot of kids nowadays are very much into FIFA stats and ratings of players and that's almost how they get a knowledge of players and I think that's almost a, a way that it would be nice that there would be an ability to almost purchase or download previous teams and, and have a knowledge of, of football from a different era rather than the sort of modern day um, thing so yeah I'll, I'll probably post a couple of screenshots up about that but yeah it's quite cool being able to play sort of FIFA and and I, I think I played my first game yesterday uh Ironically, against Sampdoria, this isn't my prediction just before you uh, check, but yeah, Grande Torino beat the modern Sampdoria team 10-1. Uh, four assists by, from Romeo Menti and a hat-trick from Gavetto. Uh So yeah, just a, a, a sort of, I, liked, I did it a couple of years ago. I think it's just a, a nice little tribute that I like to do just to be able to sort of play with, with the sort of the greats of the past and even if it is on a, on a video game. Uh, play. I mean, I think computer games to me are what wheels are to you. So I'll, uh, <laughs> you've probably done something, yeah, which, which which has a lot more of an impact. But no, fair, fair, fair play. Anything that promotes Le Grande Torino is very welcome. But yeah, I think on Sampa Monzo, I think the kind of message is the season for me is probably over for Torino. Um, what I don't want to see is this kind of drift in the last six games that, you know, let's at least kind of break some of these kind of annoying statistics we've got. Samp, uh, Samp and Monza. I mean, Torino fans don't like Sampdoria traditionally because, oh, I mean, we had the alliance a long time with with Genoa as well. I don't think Sampdoria fans are particularly keen on Torino. Um, so the last five games at the Marassi, we've won two, lost two, drawn one. We should be favourites to win this one. I mean, I just got spanked 5-0 at Fiorentina are on their knees, but who knows? And then Monza, we've never actually played in Serie A, and I actually, yeah, Monza's one of those teams I, I did do a little bit of research, and we actually have played quite a lot in Serie B in the, well, obviously in the years, we, but in the re, kind of recent Serie B years as well. And I just wanted to mention one game. Uh, 3rd of April 1999, we're 3-0 down after 24 minutes to Monza. Mm-hmm. And we ended up drawing 3-3. So that's not very typical Toro. Um, and I do, 
I had forgotten about that game, but it kind of came back to me vividly um, following it on, on on some early internet browser, not a live stream or anything, probably some really tedious kind of um, ticker or something. But yeah, so we've never played Monza in Serie A. Um, we've got the chance effectively to essentially mathematically, I don't know if we can mathematically relegate Sampdoria, but um yeah, we can, we can take it. Take it as a uh, from a fan of a club who are about to get relegated. I don't think people really worry about mathematical relegations once it's sort of a, a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that Sampa down and that, in a way, would probably help. I think if they were obviously if they were really fighting for points, obviously we play Hellas in in a couple of weeks' time. I think they'll probably put up more of a fight. And yeah, I think if we get an early goal, the fans will turn against them and. And that will be our sort of our way to get a result. I was just looking at the um, the goal scorers in that three three draw against Monza, and yeah, a brace from Ferrante and uh, Malteglietti. Yeah. Malteglietti, yeah. Yeah, I think we got promoted that season. It was a bit of kind of an uncharacteristic, yeah, um, as under under Mondonico. But um, so okay, prediction times. So There's probably no point really delving into the games. We'll be back next week. Oh, we'll be back um, the regular pod next week. Our guest is about to join us for a Superga special. So I think we'll just go for the predictions. You can't predict Torino to win two games. I mean, only an idiot would do that. I predicted us to... We, I think we've been a bit silly with our predictions recently. We've kind of let ourselves go. 4-0, you predicted against Roma. 3-0, mm. me against Atalanta. I predicted us to lose 3-0. Like, we're, we're off our game. So let's get back. This is Torino. Won't win both of these games. Statistically, they'll win the Superga game. I mean, if I was to do this without Superga, I think we'd win at Samp and probably what Monza looks like a one classic 1-1. One, one. That's how I think it might play. I think we may cock up against Sampdoria and draw 1-1. One, one. And we'll beat Monza 1 0. We're going to have to start playing it safe. We ain't scoring these three goals. So Over to you, Robert. I, that was Samp 1 1 was almost what I wanted to predict, but I'll go I'll go optimistic. I've done my stats and maybe they'll they'll raise their 50% uh, win record and, and take it to 100. So I'm going to go for a double victory. I'll go Samp 1 0 and Monza 2 1. Okay. Well, I hope you're right. Um, and without any further ado, let's bring in Mr. Dominic Bliss. Dirigenti e tecnici, Civalleri, Egri Erbstein, Livesley, Anisetta, Cortina, Giornalisti, Casalbore, Cavallero, Tosatti, Equipaggio, Meroni, Bianciardi, Pangrazzi, Dinca, so at the end of part one, you would have heard the second half of the reading of the list of victims engraved on the Lapidate Superga, including the coaching staff and journalists. Now, on that note, we've got something a little special this week. So I guess on, on last season's Superga feature, which episode 10, for anyone wishing to go back deep in the archive, we focused on the legacy of Il Grande Torino. And I think this year we want to share the story of one of the protagonists of that great side and one of the victims of the air crash. So Egri Epstein, part of the great Jewish-Hungarian football tradition of the 20s and 30s, Holocaust survivor, 
later man manager, technical director, tactician behind Il Grande Torino, led an amazing, complex and interesting life. It's charted in an excellent book by today's guest, Dominic Bliss, in Herbstein, The Triumph and Tragedy of Football's Forgotten Pioneer. It's a compelling read and it's a story, well, Dom and ourselves could spend hours talking about, but in the time available today, we just really want to focus on Herbstein's time at Torino, about Superga. Uh, but in, in that same breath, would recommend anyone who's not read the book to do so and also listen to Dom's interviews and other podcasts like The Gentleman Ultra. But no further ado, Dominic, welcome to Talking Toro. It's, it's Superga Week. And I guess first question, is, can you tell us a bit about the circumstances of when you first went to Superga and I guess what it evoked for you um, as a place, obviously, Rob and myself, I think the first time we went, we knew, knew the story of La Grande Torino. So going to a place where, where you know what happened and you have a certain kind of level of expectation. And then also, I believe you've also been fortunate to go on the 4th of May. So can you tell us a, a little bit about that as well? Yeah, thanks very much for having me on, first and foremost. Um, the first time I went to Superga was for the anniversary mass on the 4th of May. Um I can't remember the year. I think it was 2011. It might have been 2012. Um, but uh, the day before, I had been to visit Susanna Egri, um, who's the daughter, the eldest daughter of Ernu Egri Erbstein. And she lives in Turin. Um, she's famous in her own right, as a um, first as a prima ballerina when she was younger and then later as a choreographer. Um, and she gave me her invitation so she was invited as the family member of Erbstein to that mass every year. And on this occasion, she gave me that invitation to go in that stead. And because it's an invitation for two, I went with my wife. Um, but I wasn't comfortable sitting among the family members. So I went, but I stayed at the back among the fans. Um, and um, when the uh, coach going up there, was taking us up the hill. There's a, there's, um, there's a funicular that goes up there. Most people take the funicular. And one day a week, it doesn't run. And we didn't realise this. The weather was really similar to how it had been in 1949 on that day. Uh, there was a really low fog. It was raining. And all you could see was sort of damp granata people at the bottom, gathered at the bottom of the hill. And they were all muttering to themselves about this funicular being off on the day of the mass um there were people sort of suggesting that maybe the authorities were Juventus fans and uh, these kind of uh, conspiracy theories along those lines um so we had to wait for a bus and because so many people were going up there and the buses aren't that frequent we were jam-packed onto the bus I got there really early and it goes around these sharp hairpin bends a bit like um at the end of the Italian job and at one point, somebody who worked at one of the uh, sort of confectionery stands that are on the way up the hill pinged the bell on the bus to get off. Everyone else was going to the Basilica. And so the bus driver had to stop almost vertical going up this hill with a bus full of people swaying around in and so, sopping wet. It was really uncomfortable atmosphere in there. And when he tried to start again, the dampness under the wheels meant that he couldn't get the bus going again. And it started to grind and basically was moving sideways and started to shunt. And we were thinking, 
genuinely everyone was kind of every time he stopped and started the engine again to try again it rolled back a bit further we're thinking we could be in a, literally in a superga disaster on the 4th of may here in the in the fog it was the most terrifying experience i've been on on the road um and about the fifth attempt to to get the biting point on this on this bus he got he got us going and genuinely the whole bus went up like he'd scored a goal like everyone just went yeah it's it's all got going um and there was just all these red faces i mean his face was the color of the torino shirt this driver you could see it in the um in the wing mirror it was terrifying but um but we got there and when we got there was the atmosphere was was quite um strange it's unique it's like a mass but also like a match day um because everyone's kind of going around with the flags and the scarves but there's this feeling of you know reverence for the team and also the, the morbidity of the occasion um all of it comes together and you kind of feel um this is what it must be like when a load of football fans turn up to a funeral you know it's it, it, when else are you going to get that um so it was it was quite quite uh a thing to see and then we went round to the side to to the to the memorial when they were reading out the names as well so you get this this second moment of reverence because each name that's that's read out it wasn't read out was it read out by the captain that year i don't remember it being but it is i think it is always so it must have been um but i just remember it being incredibly moving and um i kind of struggled as as an english guy there to almost to feel welcome because i i wasn't not that anyone made me feel unwelcome i felt like i i felt like i was in the way almost like i am here as as a english journalist investigating this story but i'm on a, a family member's invitation I, I almost felt like i was encroaching a little bit on their grief because um, this is before really I'd fallen in love with Torino as a club. I, that that process, this was right at the start of me researching the book. If I went back now, I'd feel like a fan. It would be different. Um, at the time, I felt like a journalist almost encroaching on this moment. Um, so, yeah, it was a quite a heady experience to go there. You know, first of all, I feared for my life on the way there. Then, you know, I'd, I got to experience what that team meant to the supporters of Torino. And that was something quite special so my experience on the day itself i think it it forms the either the introduction or the foreword or the preface to my book because it really was a a way into that story like no other and the other thing i noticed that weekend obviously it's the 4th of may which is the same bank holiday weekend as labor day so if it falls on the right day you can be in um turin on you know a very politicized city for the labor marches when all the left wing people go marching and have their fists in the air and you see the whole sort of center of this uh quite bourgeois city these marbled arcades come to a standstill while while um all the uh, socialists marched through and they were not defacing but they were putting um red flags around the uh statues of uh former savoy royalty and outside these civic buildings um, and that was quite striking. So I got an introduction to that. And that year, um, the Turin Shroud was in Turin, was on show, sorry. And so uh, we went to see the Turin Shroud and the Pope was there to see it. So there was a papal visit the weekend I was there and there were loads of uh, pilgrims in Turin. And when the plane I took over there was full of priests. Um, and then so it was like something out of Father Ted. 
uh, where they were getting going through uh, security at the airport. And then and then you had um, the Labor Day marches, and then you had the Superga anniversary. And I felt like it was like this, the three things that are so revered t- in typical Italian culture, you know, politics, Catholicism, football, uh, slapped me around the face and it just gave me like, this is, this is a book. I was going to write an article, I'm writing a book. So that day was when I decided this is a book, not a, not a long read. Wow. So did you... Okay, so you went with the objections to write the article. You you kind of went home with the idea of writing a book. And then how many trips did you make to Turin after that? Or what was your relationship with the city after that? I only did two other trips. Um, they were generally to, well, I went to watch a game and to go to the Olympico and watch them play. Um, but um, most of my research, I wanted to go to all the other places that he'd um impact on football so I went to Budapest I went to Bari, Cagliari, Lucca um, and and spoke to local journalists in all those places but I went to Turin twice because it was the main one and Turin was like the apex of his career he um, he essentially earned the right to manage a top team by doing brilliant things with other teams with smaller provincial sides uh, which is a, you know a well-worn story in football but um I remember actually when the book came out, I remember doing an interview and I compared what he'd done at Lucchese to being akin to what Eddie Howe did at Bournemouth. Um, and then, you know, now, funny enough, Eddie Howe has got the chance to structure a well-financed top team and and see if he can take them onto another level. Slightly more controversial finance than Novo's agricultural um, equipment wealth. But, you know, uh, a similar sort of story. Um, the uh, parallels there. But um, Erbstein was brought in by Ferruccio Novo to modernise the structure of Torino before the other clubs got round to doing that. He wanted to steal a march on the other top clubs in Italy. He'd seen how um, Erbstein kind of acted as a a restructure, a CEO kind of figure at football clubs, not just a manager, not just a coach. And I think he thought, you know, Herbert Chapman at Arsenal did that. 15 years earlier and look at what happened they turned into the pioneers of world world club football let alone english club football and dominated for years and he thought torino could do the same get the structure right and everything will follow and Erbstein, you know wasn't just a great uh headhunter of people to run the club but he was a great scout of footballers so he just um, there was this great quote um from uh i think it was Ettore Puricelli, who was a Milan player, and he said, you know, that Torino's advantage was that they had Erbstein, who went looking for champions and found them everywhere. And I love that quote. Basically, he he went to all the other provincial clubs in Italy that he hadn't managed, <laughs> uh, rather than just bringing players he knew. And he said, sort of said, Mazzola at Venezia is an unbelievable player. Loic as well. Yeah, get their inside forwards. Gretzara, Triestina, incredible player, bring him in. And he just brought all these players from the other clubs and made a super team at Torino. He was scouting them while he was on the run as well. You know, that's another thing about Erbstein. We, we, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a bit, but he, he obviously came for a year in 1938-39, didn't even finish the season actually, before the manifesto of race was passed by Mussolini and, and foreign Jews had to leave the country. They couldn't work. So... Erbstein took Torino to the top of the league, was in the process of restructuring this club and uh, had to leave. 
um, which, you know, you'd think would be the end of the story. But Novo loved him so much and trusted him so much that he kind of uh, kept in touch. And he, he even helped Erbstein to live a more comfortable life when things were um, really quite difficult for him in Budapest once, you know, the Budapest uh, persecution of, uh, sorry, the persecution of Jews in Hungary really kind of accelerated. Um, there wasn't a lot Novo could do, but before then he was able, you know, while, while it was difficult for Jews to start businesses and things like this, Novo was helping Erbstein to set up a, a textile business. Um, and also they were in touch about players and it's believed and I'm told on by two or three different sources that Erbstein was incognito going to northeast Italy to scout Matsola, Loic and Gretzar um, in Trieste and Venice while he was banished from Italy. Uh, he was going to watch them play and recommending them to sign them. Like Almost like, he, like this is a challenge, it will keep me going. He he really was that kind of guy. Like he just didn't believe in authoritarianism, and he wouldn't stand. He wouldn't stand for it. You know, if people introduced persecution laws, he found a way around them. I'll live my best life, thank you very much. I don't believe in this stuff. And I just think he's such a inspiring figure in that respect. He was a really progressive guy. Would Would you say that relationship or those two people, Novo and Erbstein, that relationship was fundamental to? what Il Grande Torino became um, yeah, and every, every, everything they lived um, you know, during the war and the fact that they kept that relationship um, and almost with that promise that, that when things improved, Erbstein could come back. Yeah, I think there were six coaches during the war, uh, head coaches of Torino, and they were winning titles um, in that time. You know, Erbstein wasn't the manager when they won all of their titles. He was... Um, and, and actually, it's, a, it's a, another thing I'm often asked by particularly particularly um, pedantic editors and writers. Is like, what was he? Was he? You said he's a technical director, the manager, the head coach. What was he? But the, the point of Erbstein is that he was too much for head coaches. You know, he was there all the time. I think he was an overbearing presence. Like he wanted to be involved in tactics, in signings. Um, it was almost like a, he liked those coffee house the Danubian coffee house discussions to be taking place in the uh within the club uh you know the whole boot room thing at Liverpool where you had um several coaches in one room discussing what to do they were doing that in Turin so you had um Copernico Roberto Copernico who was another director at the time another football man uh he was kind of like a consigliere between Novo the managers Erbstein you had senior players like Felice Borrell, who came from Juve and went back to Juve, but briefly starred for Torino. And he's believed to be the man that insisted that they switch to the Sistema, the, the, the WM system. Um, but Erbstein had already been playing it before the war with smaller clubs. So the two of them together kind of helped to bring Torino towards that system, which was kind of like the antithesis of what Pozzo was doing with Italy. And there's another story, really, is the very uncomfortable uh, coexistence of Pozzo's Italy and Erbstein's Turin, which were the same team, basically yeah. the same players, but two managers who were very jealous of one another. Why uh, Why do you think... The thing noticeable to me when I lived in Turin, there were certain characters from Il Grande Torino that were very present in, in the modern day. So um, Franco Ossola... 
was where was very involved with the kind of legacy of Legrand Torino, um, be, being the son of, and sort of certain stories Mazzola as well by virtue of, of you know being the player he was and, ha- and and the legacy of Sandro Mazzola as well. But but obviously as you found out with your book, Erbstein had been become a kind of forgotten figure. I mean that's a lot of the premise leading into your book both in Hungary and in Italy, uh, never mind anywhere else. And I guess, why why do you think that is? Why do you think his, he, he was almost airbrushed out of the kind of Il Grande Torino legacy? Well, first of all, I think the main thing is that the team were the Italy team. They were the heroes of this post-war Italy that was on its knees. Um, and they kind of helped to generate some pride, some sporting pride, along with, people like Fausto Coppi and the fact that they'd all died at once was a national tragedy and so it became the tragedy of those players so I think that's primarily the reason why a figure like Erbstein who was not a player not Italian was kind of sidelined it's not I don't think it was deliberate a sidelined almost sounds like it was Done, done consciously. I think that was the main reason. But I do think there, there's a there's an argument that, that the the issues between Pozzo and Erbstein played a part. Um, Pozzo, for example, um, was playing a system that Erbstein outdated. And Erbstein essentially made um, Pozzo's approach to management redundant. And they were using the same players. Um, Pozzo won two World Cups playing that way and pretty much what the year after the season after that World Cup Erbstein turns up at Torino and, and rips up that rule book that way of playing and brings Italy into a new tactical generation playing a prototype of total football um, that's awkward that's awkward for everyone involved because Pozzo is really close to Torino um, so there was a game between Hungary and, and um, Italy in 1947. And Erbstein was the ambassador for the Hungarian national team on that trip. Puskas, a teenage Puskas was in that squad. Um, and Erbstein introduced them all to people at the receptions. And there was apparently some awkwardness between Pozzo and Erbstein there. Because Pozzo was managing the other team and they were Erbstein's players. And there were accusations made that Erbstein had given Hungary kind of the key to getting a result against his players, his Torino players. But then on the other side, there were Erbstein sympathisers in the press saying that was an awful football match between two of the best teams in the world. There's one man who could have got the best out of both of those teams and he was sat in the stands as an ambassador and that's Erbstein, which is obviously embarrassing for um, Pozzo, his players were underperforming at a time where they were at their best at club level against his national team. It's awkward, right? And um, that that game is also remarkable, just as an offshoot. Bella Goodman's um, club team at the time provided nine of the Hungary team for that game. And Erbstein's club team provided 10 of the Italy team for that game. And Bella Gutman and Erbstein were not managing either of the, the, the national teams and they played a terrible game against one another. Bella Gutman and Erbstein escaped a concentration camp together, a labour camp, I should say, together during the Second World War. Um, 
which is in itself a remarkable coincidence, two of the best managers of the post-war era were basically together in an escape from the Nazis towards the end of the Second World War and then provided 19 of the 22 players on the pitch for an international match two years later. Um, so that in itself is is a, a great side story to that. Um, but I do think that there was an awkwardness about what Erbstein was able to achieve on the football pitch at the same time that Pozzo was perhaps coming to the end of his time as the Italy manager. And I, I do wonder if maybe people were a bit uncomfortable about glorifying him too much because of that. There were even accusations that he was in some way tied up in uh, the communist government in Hungary because how had he managed to get back to Italy so quickly after the war when you know it was very difficult for people to get out of the country? And he was able to travel back and forth. He even signed players after the Iron Curtain had gone down from Hungary and Czechoslovakia and managed to sign them for Italian, not always for Torino either, sometimes for satellite clubs like Como, uh, Lucchese, Alessandria. Um, he was bringing these players in. One of them, Schubert, died at Superga. So there were lots of people raising an eyebrow. How was Erbstein able to wave all of these strange situations, get through these heavily documented awkward journeys and make them so easy and bring back players with him um, to play in. And and I think the answer goes back to my earlier point, which is that this is an incredibly well-connected man who but, but loathed authoritarianism and was willing to work around it however way he could. Um, and I think that may be counted against him. I do. I think that so, so I think that's part of it. But the main reason is simply that this was an Italian tragedy and the players lost were the Italy team. So they naturally took centre stage in the morning. And what impact has your book had in Italy since publication? Uh, well, it was pu- it was published in Italian um, a few years ago, actually. So it was a, a little while in the, in the making. Um, I, had, I haven't really had too much... Kickback. Mainly, it's just been people saying this English guy shed a light on the story. Um, I was half expecting people to pick up on some of those points that I made about um, the controversies, but but apparently not. Actually, in Hungary, it got more of a, of that kind of thing. There was there was almost like a bit of um, a lot of people in Hungary were saying it's it's a shame on on their. Um, media and their football scene that it took an Englishman to tell this story um, whereas in Italy obviously the the story of Superga is well known and Erbstein was just part of it and there wasn't there was a book about Erbstein by another Italian author um, Settimelli uh, Leon Carlo Settimelli a few years prior to that um, but yeah in terms of impact not as great as I'd have hoped when it first came out I think people were interested intrigued um, and a few journalists called me to do interviews, but mainly I think the the annual interviews with um, Susanna Egri um, keep the story of Erbstein fresh in Turin. She she's done a great job over the years of making sure that her father's story isn't forgotten. And you know she was one of the key people in in helping me piece together his story, along with Marta, who sadly passed away, his other daughter who hadn't really done any interviews before I, I managed to track her down to Milan and we became 
great friends actually me and Marta so um, she came to the along with Susanna to the Egri Herbstein tournament in Budapest when we inaugurated that and um, Antonio Comey who was the sporting director of Torino at the time came as well um, and that was really quite an uplifting moment for me to see them all there at the tournament in his name um, but so yeah I've gone away from your question a little bit but um, I think maybe the way to get this story to be more impactful again I suppose would be to do to do it in a, some kind of video format whether it be a docu documentary series or a dramatic series or something like that the difficulty being the amount of footage and the amount of people who can lay claim to this story um you know me being one of them you know there's a lot of people who have researched and told this story who would probably look at a retelling of it and go well I could have done that um and I think you know everyone's got a different focus I think Edgry Erbstein's story stands alone, really. Uh, so if you were telling the Superga story, you would have to tell a portion of the Erbstein story rather than the full story. So that's always been a consideration for me. Would I tell the Grande Torino story or would I tell the Erbstein story? And, you know, which one, where do you put the well, focus then? I'll let Rob, uh, uh, Rob, Rob is pitching to produce a Netflix series on, on Torino, but... Yeah, I'll I'll pass the word to Rob, but yeah, you could extend that to a a documentary on Torino with the various other tragedies and uh, and things which have happened since Superga as well. And, and yeah, I, I know Rob, you're you you think that's definitely something that's got legs. Yeah, I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast. I think the the story of Torino and especially obviously Epstein's story that that Dom, Dominic t- tells so well in his book. It it just seems like a shame that it that your average football fan isn't aware of these sort of things. You look at documentaries which have been um, sort of created in the last couple of years and uh, the, the Sunderland one on Netflix and the Wrexham one on, on Disney Plus and, and how that sort of has led to to fans of, of these teams. And I just feel like telling the story of Torino and telling the story of Erbstein in that sort of medium just totally changes, opens up the way that this that people will know about this. That the majority of my friends who are big football fans didn't know anything about Superga, Grande Torino, not and, and unfortunately not Urban before before they sort of got to talking to me about Torino. Yeah, actually, that's that would be a good way in, wouldn't it? You you follow the current Torino trials and tribulations, and insert the history into that series, like the Wrexham series has done so well. Um, that's probably the best way to do it, I'd have said, especially then you overcome the fact that there's sort of a limited amount of footage of the Grand Vettorino. Did you did you have the, I would say, pleasure or have you watched any of the kind of documentaries or films they've done on the Grand Vettorino? There were a few that knocked around 10, 15 years ago. Rye did one. Uh, they're more like dramatised versions of them. I don't know if you saw them, but they were a little bit, everything that's been done, I found a little bit hammy and... Mm. Not, not that was the same. Today. That was the same as the book I mentioned as well. It was a bit, it was a bit experimental and dramatic. There was imagined dialogue, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the best way to tell the Herbstein story or not. Personally, I don't think it is great to do conjecture in a story like that. Um, but the yeah, I've seen clips and bits and tried to watch it, but. 
it's not my cup of tea. The the kind of films that you the the the, 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 the Roy one is the one I try to connect with. Yeah, um, could be done. Maybe that's just my home county's English sensibilities. Told me maybe it landed plumb perfectly with an Italian audience. So I don't know. Um, but but I would like to see it done the way that Rob's just kind of outlined. I think that would be great. Rob's got you down as executive producer for um, for, the super, <laughs> for the super Hugger episodes, but I guess la- last question for me is I'm unconscious of of time and just a quick one. Um, I guess for an English person, the obvious road in with the Superga tragedy may have been the Leslie Levesley story that the the English coach. Um, how much how much dialogue or um, yeah, how involved were they with with your research or uh, and, and your book as well? His son Bill helped me loads. His son Bill was brilliant. He he didn't like football. He's into cycling, but um, he grew up in Torino when his well he was there while his dad was there. There's a lovely picture of him sat on a ball eating an apple at um, the Philadelphia as a little boy. Um, but he also played with um, Sandro Mazzola when the kids ran onto the pitch to play. At, um, so he's got memories of that. But he wasn't into football and. He rediscovered the story when he was invited as a family member to the anniversary mass. He he helped me loads with that. And Leslie's story is incredible. Leslie Leavesley managed um, the Italian Olympic team in 1948, but he also managed a Torino team in like a youth tournament. I think they played, they might have even played against Busby Babes. And they the plane um, crashed on the runway. They didn't, no one died, but it was like a foreshadowing of the Superga disaster. Um, and he also went in behind enemy lines during the war. Um, he was a uh, personal trainer for a parachute regiment. So guy as hard as nails. There's pictures of him topless taking training, and he looks like a modern day kind of uh, gym bunny. He looks, you know, and he was in incredible shape. That guy. Um, and yeah, so I think um, Les Lee's story is brilliant. I wrote it for the Independent actually, um, one fourth of May, um, because I'd, I'd, I discovered it while researching Herb Stein and. Yeah, it's 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 another story that's that sadly got lost, and possibly for the same reason as the Herbstein one did, because the tragedy's strong enough with the squad of players going, you know, um, that perhaps the, these other stories were forgotten alongside it. Um, bit like um, Frank Swift, the famous Man City goalkeeper who died in the um, Munich air disaster. Uh, he was a journalist at the time, you know, but we don't hear that story so often. And he captained um, England against Italy. And there's a picture of Frank Swift leading out the England team and Matt Sola leading out the Italy team. And they both died in plane crashes. Um, there's a story there, I think. Two individual stories between those two players as well. Well, Dom, it sounds like you're going to have to come back and tell a few more stories. So, um, But no, I really, we really want to thank you for your time. And yeah, some a lot of really interesting things there. And just yeah, kind of commemorating the 4th of May with us. And uh, yeah, we'll, ha- we'll we'll have you back, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully have a ca- a talking Toro catch up in the UK or in Turin somewhere soon. But uh, yeah, from from myself and and from Rob, cheers, Dom. Um, Thanks very to much. Forza Toro. Forza Toro. Forza Toro. Forza Toro. Uh,